Well, as I said, we are in Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute. We already did Nehemiah chapter 3. That was a few weeks ago. Now, last week was Radical Truth Ministries, where Joe uh, Carey came and shared with us about reaching uh, those of uh, the Muslim faith, and then two weeks before that was Easter. So it's been a little bit of a while since we've actually been in the book of Nehemiah, making our way through. But some of you might recall, no, I remember three weeks ago we went through Nehemiah 3, and Nehemiah 3 had about 700 names listed in it, and somehow we made a sermon out of that instead of skipping over. Well, that is true. And as I mentioned, that there are many times we come across a passage like Nehemiah 3 where there's a listing of names and we think, I'm just going to skip that chapter altogether and I'll get to the good stuff in chapter 4. Or, if we're very spiritual, we say to ourselves, well, I'll skim through it and at least this way, when all is said and done, I can say I read through the whole Bible and things like that. But we try to get through it rather quickly because we think that's kind of boring. Well, I don't think any scripture is boring and I think we should take our time with it. Um, so much so, I thought we should do the list of names twice. And so today, we are actually going to look at Nehemiah chapter 3 again. And the reason why we're going to do that is because I think there is a beautiful picture in Nehemiah 3 that we didn't have time to kind of consider and look at the first time we went through it. And so I wanted to begin today's message by going quickly through Nehemiah 3 and pointing out sort of that picture, the symbolism that we see there. And then as I got studying what was supposed to be a 10-minute intro kind of thing, and then we'll get to the good stuff in chapter 4, became 20 minutes, and then 30 minutes, and then 70 pages of notes. And so uh, today we're just going to go back through Nehemiah chapter 3 again. So if you haven't already done so, would you please turn there? Here's my hope. This is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness that the man and the woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so, to drive that home, we're going to look again today. Now, you may recall that uh, the last time we were together looking at Nehemiah, I threw sort of a schematic of what the city of Jerusalem would have looked like, the walls of the city. So let's drop that up there again. So this is just a general idea of what the city sort of looked like at the time of Nehemiah and these walls that the children of Israel were going to be rebuilt. Uh, to rebuild. You may recall that I mentioned that there were 12 gates that led in and out of the city. So Jerusalem is a pretty big city. Some cities only had one gate. Uh, 12 gates would lead in and out of the city. Ten of those gates are mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3. Two are left out. What's called the gate of Ephraim we read about in Nehemiah 8. Also the prison gate we read about in Nehemiah chapter 12. But in this account that we're looking at here in Nehemiah 3, ten gates are listed. And I think that's significant, as we'll point out. So there's two things that I find significant about the symbolism of each of these gates. Number one is that he chose to use, just point out ten of them. And then the second thing is the order which uh, Nehemiah chose to kind of reveal each one of the gates to us. Why did he go counterclockwise? Why did he start with the sheep gate and begin to move to the fish gate and to the old gate and so on and so forth? And I believe all of that is significant. So we'll take a look at it. Remember this, a point that I made in our first time together, is that each gate had a different purpose. You would go to that particular gate if you were seeking to accomplish that particular purpose. So quickly, some of them, the sheep gate, for instance. The sheep gate was the place where the sacrifices were brought in. The sheep, if you will. And you can see the proximity there to the temple. And so you were coming uh, to offer the sacrifice, or the priests were coming to bring in the sacrificial uh, lambs and sheep. They would do so through there, sheep. 
The second one is the dung gate. You can see that's about 6 o'clock there in the city walls. And the dung gate is where the waste that was produced by the inhabitants of the city, that's the gate it went out to be discarded. We learned about the inspection gate. And the inspection gate is where the king's men would reconvene after battle and they would be reviewed or they would be inspected. So every gate served a specific purpose. And today what I want to do is draw attention to the idea of symbolism. And the title of our sermon is The Christian Experience as Seen in the Gates of Nehemiah. Because I think in each one of these gates in the specific order in which Nehemiah gave this, we have a story, a beautiful picture of the work that God does in the lives of those that choose to be followers of his. Sound good? You're like, all right, whatever, I'm here. I got 40 minutes, you know, give me your best shot. All right, I'll do my best. All right, so the first gate we mentioned that Nehemiah mentions is the sheep gate. We read about it in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, the high priest rose up with his brothers and the priest, and they built the sheep gate. Again, Nehemiah chooses to begin with the sheep gate. And I would suggest that's significant to you because the sheep gate, as I said, was the place that the sacrifices were brought in to be offered in the temple. And so, how does God begin in our lives? He begins with the sacrifice, doesn't he? It all begins with the sacrifice. The writer of the book of Hebrews, he says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So the sheep gate speaks of Christ and his work upon the cross for us. Now, well-meaning Christians, we may differ on things like eschatology or ecclesiology. We may come to different conclusions about the exercising of spiritual gifts in the public worship setting or maybe the role of men and women in church leadership. We may all come to different uh, conclusions on that, but we all agree on the starting point of the Christian faith, and that is the place of sacrifice. The Christian faith begins with the Messiah that would choose to give his life on our behalf. You remember John the Baptist in, in the early stages of the Gospels there? John the Baptist is out with some of his disciples, and they encounter Jesus. Jesus is off a little bit in the distance, and John says to his disciples, he points to this man that is off in the distance, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. The sacrifice. It all begins with the sacrifice. I don't know this for certain, but I have a suspicion that the preferred gate of entrance for Jesus may have been this particular sheep gate. We know that other times he came in through uh, the east gate on his triumphal entry, but I have a suspicion that he chose, just for the symbolism, to walk in and out through the sheep gate. That may or may not be the case. But we can say almost with certainty that this is the gate that Jesus would have went out of Jerusalem or been led out of Jerusalem when he was taken off to be crucified because of the proximity to where the trial would have been held and all these things. This is probably the gate that he went out. And again, the symbolism that the Lamb of God would be taken out through the sheep gate to be sacrificed for our sins. Our Christian walk, it begins when we realize that Jesus came as God's sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of the world, and specifically to take away my sin. That's what Isaiah the prophet was referring to when he said these words, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to our own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He came to be our sacrifice. And our relationship with God has to begin at the place of sacrifice. And for the Jews, that was the temple and the sheep gate. 
But for us as New Testament believers, that's the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Nehemiah begins where we need to begin in our walk with the Lord. He begins at the sheep gate. Now following the sheep gate, notice the next gate that we have listed is in verse 3. And that is what is called the fish gate. And we can see uh, the fish gate listed there in verse 3 as well as the picture of it there. As I mentioned in our last study, the fish gate was the gate where the fishermen from the Galilee region and perhaps other places, they would bring in their catch. And then they would seek to sell it there in the market. And symbolically, the fish gate, I would suggest to you, it reminds us that upon coming to faith, which is the cross, the sheep gate, it reminds us that upon coming to faith, that the Lord sends us forth to tell others of all the good things that God has done in our lives. And so you recall that when Jesus called his disciples, he said to them these words, follow me and I will make you, you know, yeah, you've read it, fishers of men. And again and again in the Gospels, we see Jesus doing a saving work in people's lives and then immediately sending them forth, right? And so when Jesus encountered the woman at the well in John chapter 4, what a wonderful story recorded for us in John 4, the first thing that this changed woman did was to go into town and tell all the people. So John 4 says, so the woman left her water jar there, the very reason she came out, whole life has changed, whole purpose in life has changed. The woman left her water jar there, she went away into town, and she said to the people, come, see a man who has told me everything I have ever done. Another time when Jesus encountered the demon-possessed man that was living among the the tombs, he finishes his time with the man by saying to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So step two in our walk with the Lord, step one is coming to the Lord, recognizing his sacrifice for our sin. But step two in our walk with the Lord is going and telling someone else all that God has done for us. Now let's be honest. That's an area that most of us fall short in, isn't it? Telling other people. And we rationalize. What do we say to ourselves? Well, I'll, I'll be a witness. I'll live my life in such a way that people will know. People are not going to get saved because you're nice to them. I don't like that. It doesn't make me comfortable. It doesn't make me comfortable. I'd rather just be nice to people and everybody get saved. I can do that. Having to open my mouth and have conversations with them makes me a little less comfortable. And for whatever reason, whether it's we feel ill-prepared or perhaps we don't want to offend someone or maybe we don't think that's our gift, whatever it might be, whatever the reason might be, this is something, as I've been saying in the book of Nehemiah, that we just need to get past. And we need to open our mouths and share that. And it's our responsibility as believers to be a witness to those that are around us of the good things that God has done in our lives. Now you hear that and you say, all right, I understand that, but what would I say? What would I say to someone? I got an amen from someone here in the front. Be a witness. And what is a witness? Well, a witness is a person who tells what they have seen and what they have heard. And so you were lost, but now you're found. You were searching, but now you have come to find peace. You were guilt-ridden and plagued with condemnation, but now you've been set free. And the weight of all that sin has been lifted from your lives. And you say, all right, but I've tried that. I've tried telling others in the past, and no one has responded. And you know what? That may be the case. I've tried telling people, and they don't respond, or they do respond not very pleasantly uh, to me. And so it may be the case, but I can assure you of this. I assure you of this. If you don't cast the line in the water again, then you're never going to catch a fish. And so you might go out fishing for a day and catch nothing, 
But I can tell you this, if you don't go out, you'll definitely catch nothing. And so we are called to be witnesses. And we are called to share what the Lord has done. And the fish gate symbolizes that. Go and be fishers of men, Jesus says, for all of us here. So perhaps your fish gate has fallen into a little bit of disrepair. Well, I would suggest the Lord would have each of us pay a little attention to the condition of the gate in our lives and make the necessary repairs so that it's once again, it's in proper working order. That is, we're sharing our faith. And, and I would ask for you to ask the Lord, you know, Lord, speak to me about this. Is this an area I've been deficient in? And would you have me be a little more bold in sharing my faith and all the good things that God has done in my life? And so we see the sheep gate, we see the fish gate. Now, you can skim down because we've read this already. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 speaks about Jehoiada, the son of Phasiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodeah, and they repaired the gate of Yeshan. Some of your versions will say the old gate. And so here we look at the old gate. And what's interesting is, inevitably, as we begin to share our faith with other people, as we go out as fishers of men, the questions are going to rise up. Questions that you may not have all the answers to. In some cases, there really are no answers. I, you know, I can't give you a satisfactory answer for why good things, bad things happen to good people or good things happen to bad people. I'm not going to give you one that you can walk away from here saying, I'm satisfied with that answer. You're still going to go away with the same exact question. And the point is, what, that I'm making is, as we are out sharing our faith and beginning to walk the walk now with the Lord, there are going to come times where we are faced with things that might cause us to stumble or certainly are calling another person to stumble. What about this? How come that? Why not this? And so on and so forth. And what the old gate speaks of is the solid teaching and doctrine of the Word of God. Or simply, it speaks of the ways of God. You see, we live in a day of constantly wanting the next new thing. So there's nothing wrong with our television, but there's a new nice shiny one that's calling our name. Our car is still running fine, but it's a couple of years old now. I need a new one. Our smartphone, in some cases, smart enough to cook our dinners. But it's old, and I want something new and improved. And here's a little secret I think that many of us have come to discover. Not everything that is new is necessarily improved, especially as it pertains to God and the ways of God. Jeremiah speaks of the ways of God. He calls them the ancient paths. Jeremiah 60 says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask, for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in them and find rest for your souls. And we're living in a day where things are changing radically and rapidly and oftentimes for no other reason than the mantra that change is good. And things may change, but our heart always remains the same. And so continuing to search for something new or something exciting or something revolutionary, what is the inevitable result almost always? Frustration dissatisfaction. You remember the old U2 song? I grew up with U2. Um, I don't know if that makes me a sinner or not. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the old U2 song said, I st it had that word, I, or phrase, I still haven't found what I am looking for. There's just that searching and searching and searching and searching and not coming to the place where the soul sat feels satisfied. What we're looking for is the unchanging God of the ancient word. And that is the place where we find rest that our souls are desperate for. Again, look at Jeremiah 6, and there you will find rest for your souls. And so we need to ask for the ancient paths, as Jeremiah said, 
And when we do that, we will find rest for our souls. Have you discovered that with the ways of God? Have you discovered that in your walk with Him where you're just sitting with Him and hearing from Him and communing with Him as He ministers to you? Because the ways of God are sufficient and they are unchanging. And we don't need to run in all sorts of directions to find something new in our walk. You see, what, what starts to happen in the Christian walk is you're fired up, you're excited, you got saved, Jesus did a great work in you, you've realized you've been forgiven, this whole weight of all of your sin has been released, people saying, what's different about you? And you're like, I don't know, I'm just changed, something's new, here it is. And you begin to explain that to people at the fish gate, and so on, and then you begin to walk along in your walk with the Lord. And the Christian walk, in some respects, it, it kind of becomes mundane. You get up every day, you have a little Bible time, whatever it may be, you go to work, you come home, you have dinner, you, and you're just sort of going through the motions. And now you want something to jazz it up a little bit. Nothing's going to jazz up the Christian walk. The Christian walk is the Christian walk. What jazzes it up is when you come back to the Lord and say, I don't need something new, I don't need something different, I don't need something fresh, something that nobody else had in times past. I, I just want you, Lord. And we begin to discover that in our walk with Him as time begins to go on, that it's about you having Him and walking with Him. And that's the idea there of the old gate. We don't need to look for the latest trend or the newest technique, and we don't need to modify God's message to appeal to our changing times because we learn this, that the ancient paths are sufficient. And so as I've been asking, how's your old gate doing? Has it fallen into a bit of disrepair? Have you, has your time with the Lord suffered a little bit? Maybe you've strayed away from daily times with Him where you just sit with Him and you learn from Him? And as I've said in the other cases, let the Lord speak to you about that as well and do His work. Now we move on as far as the gates are concerned and we move to the fourth gate listed for us, which is the valley gate. And you can see that's down in verse 13. It speaks of Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repairing the valley gate. Now one thing that you'll notice is between the old gate and the valley gate, and between the valley gate and the dung gate, it's the greatest distance that we have between any of the gates. And I don't know about you, but if you tell me I'm about to head out into the valley and I'm going to be there the longest amount of time, that makes me a little startled. That's kind of ominous to consider. Now you may recall that I mentioned that the valley gate led out into the desert area or into the valley, the dry desert area of southern Israel. And just as all of us, we are called to show up at the sheep gate and to go in and out of the fish, or the fish gate and then to head off to the ancient paths of the Lord at the old gate. In the same way, each of us are called to have dry valley experiences. And you say, I don't like the sound of that. I didn't come here to, to have a bad feeling. I want to have a good feeling. I don't want to go off into the valley and you promise me that I'm going to have to head off into the valley. The dry desert valley experience is probably not one any of us would choose. But it's one that we all must go through. You see, the valley is the place of humility. The valley is the place where God breaks us. And He breaks us of our pride and He breaks us of our arrogance, leading us to the point where we are casting ourselves on Him in a greater way. The valley is the place where God's Holy Spirit reveals the depths of the depravity of our souls. He reveals our sin to us and just how great our need is for Him as our Savior and how uh, His grace really is amazing. You see, the unveiling of that, 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 the pride that is in me and God, I need you, that starts at the sheep gate. 
if you want to think of it as a college class, that's Humility 101. But the Valley Gate, that's the place of the advanced degree. And that's where we're digging in and we're discovering some things about ourselves that we never knew really resided deep down in us. The Valley Gate is the place where God breaks us. And every one of us, if we want to go anywhere with Jesus, and I, th I think you understand what I mean by that, if we really want to be used by the Lord and have this deep relationship with the Lord, if we want to go anywhere with Jesus, then we're going to have to have our pride broken. You remember in the Old Testament book of Genesis, there's Joseph, and Joseph had his valley experience for some two decades during his period of sla in slavery and imprisonment in Egypt. And what the record makes very clear there in the book of Genesis is that that valley experience prepared Joseph for the day that he would one day go on to be second in the kingdom of Egypt. David, the king, prior to being a king, he went through a valley experience for as many they suspect as 20 years of his life. Went through a valley experience as he ran and he hid in the desert valley area from King Saul who was trying to kill him. And again, the record makes very clear that God was using that time to prepare him for the day he himself would lead the kingdom uh, of Israel. Even the Lord Jesus, first, prior to going into ministry, first went through the wilderness experience of 40 days before beginning his public ministry. And we all know the scripture, many of us do at least, it says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So if you want to be used by the Lord and you want to go anywhere with Jesus, you're, we're going to have to come to the place where Jesus is exalted and where we are made low. There's a story of a young minister in Scotland. He was just out of seminary. He never preached to a congregation before. But because of his great record in the seminary, he was invited to preach at a certain church. So he went up into the pulpit with great pride. But when he got up before the congregation, to his confusion, he found out that while a sermon was easy to prepare on paper, it was quite another thing to deliver it to a group of people. And so the man became frightened. And he forgot everything he ever knew. And he left the pulpit at the close of the sermon in great shame and humility. And as he went down, a little lady who had watched every moment of his actions, from his entering the pul pulpit and his giving of the sermon to leaving the pulpit, she went up to him and she said, Young man, if you had only gone into the pulpit as you came down from the pulpit, you would have come down like you had gone up. And the whole nature of humility we find is described for us by the Apostle Paul in what he refers to as the fruit of the Spirit. So if you look at Galatians 5, it says the fruit of the Spirit, it's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, gentleness, it's self-control. Humility wraps all of that. You can't have really those things unless you are a person that is marked by humility. And we can't fake humility. At least not for long. Humility is not something that we put on and we take off because eventually, that which we truly are is going to manifest itself. And even if we could put on humility, let's just say we could. We could all put on a good show. We could fake it. Even if we could put on humility and take it on and take it off like a garment, the real significance of the point that is being made is this, that if we don't have humility, we will never be in the place where we can learn and where we can grow until we come to God in humility. And that's why God leads us through the valley. You know, some of us think, God, that's mean. Why are you bringing me to a place where I'm going to feel down? Why are you bringing me to a place where it's going to feel heavy? Why are you bringing me to a place where I'm going to be struggling and wrestling and wondering, why am I even doing this? He does it 
because that's the place where he teaches us. He takes us through the valley that we might find ourselves humble enough to receive the great lessons that each of us need to learn from him. And honestly, everything in us cries, stay away from the valley. Valley bad, you know. High place is good, you know. Everything in us cries for that. But I, I would suggest to you it's time that we reconsider that sort of thinking because the Lord will use the dry desert valley experience for good if we let him. And for some of us, I would suggest it's time that we head over to the valley gate and we venture out west of Jerusalem into the dry desert area for that's the place where God can do some of his best work. That's where he can break us. That's where he can teach us. Valley experiences aren't pleasant. And sometimes they feel like they're never going to end. They're going to go on forever and ever. But remember, rest assured, the Lord is with us even in the midst of the valley. You remember the well-known Psalm, Psalm 23, where it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that I'll fear no evil because you're with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me, the psalmist said. Again, God is using those experiences for good that we might grow. Now, immediately following the valley gate is the dung gate. I mentioned to you before, this is also introduced in verse 13. I mentioned before that the dung gate is the gate where all the refuse of the city would be removed. And it would eventually be burned in the fire. And like each one of these gates, if we're going to walk with Jesus, then we're going to have to go through in and out of the dung gate as well. Every now and again. And the dung gate, I would suggest to you, it represents the place where all the filth in our lives is removed. And that's why I think it's ideal that it comes immediately after the valley gate. Because the valley gate is where the Holy Spirit reveals all that needs to go in our lives. He reveals our pride. He reveals our sin. And the dung gate is the place where we discard of all of that stuff that He has just revealed to us. And no city, no ancient city, no present day city could remain healthy unless it devises a plan for its garbage and its filth. And even so, you as a Christian, you will never be healthy unless you are consistently making your way in and out of the dung gate to take out the trash every now and again. And the trash that I'm speaking of is sin in our lives. As we've learned, Jesus deals with the penalty of our sin at, and in our lives at the cross. But at the same time, and this is a glorious truth, this side of heaven, the same time, His death and His resurrection deals with the power of sin in our lives. And through the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the Holy Spirit begins to reveal to us areas of sin. He reveals our selfishness. He reveals our pride. He reveals our sexual sin. He reveals our jealousies. He reveals our dissensions. He reveals that strife that is within our heart. He reveals these things. That's mercy. And that's grace that God would reveal those things to us. And He does that. And when He does, it's our responsibility to bag it up in the garbage bag, if you will, and to take it down to the trash heap so that it can be consumed by the fire. Very little is said in the Scripture about the dung gate. It's mentioned here in passing and things like that. Very little is mentioned about it. It just seems like it was a necessary evil. Everyone know, knew that a big city like Jerusalem would need a dung gate in order to get rid of the filth and so on. So it's not really mentioned very much. But the reality I would suggest is this. I think it's parallel, which is sin that I'm making the parallel to, I think that does need perhaps a little more attention. And I do think we need to draw our attention to it from time to time because if we want to be healthy and we want to thrive in our walk with the Lord, 
and we want to do and be all that God wants us to do and be, then we must. When God puts His finger on an area of sin in our hearts, we must forsake that sin and run hard after righteousness. And as with each one of these other gates, we need to go in and out of the dung gate gate with regularity, allowing God to rid us of all the filth so that we can walk in righteousness. So the dung gate. Allowing the Lord to expose us. Doing business with the Lord and giving it over and saying, you know what? Let it be consumed. I'm not coming back to it. Let it be consumed. All right, now we go to the sixth gate. The sixth gate is the fountain gate. Found in verse 15, it speaks of Shalom and some others, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repairing the fountain gate. Now, I find it delightful, and one of the ladies after church a couple weeks ago, she pointed out how delightful it is that the fountain gate comes right after the dung gate. Because you get under the dung gate, you're playing around with garbage and all that other stuff there, you just feel dirty, don't you? And to be able to come out of that dung gate and to go right to the fountain gate, what a blessing. And the fountain gate represents the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the lives of each of us that believe. And speaking to his disciples, Jesus declared this. He said, I'm leaving you, but I won't leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. That's John 14. I'll ask the Father, he said, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, I will not leave you as orphans. A few minutes ago, I mentioned to you the woman at the well, the story of the woman at the well. Well, during that encounter, I didn't share this with you, during that encounter, Jesus and this woman, they come before this particular well, and they go on and they begin to have this conversation. And Jesus says this. He kind of points at the well to the lady as a picture, points to the well, and he says this. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him is never going to thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A spring of water. Not a stagnant pool of water, but a spring of water. And that is the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's another similar encounter. This time at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's recorded for us in John chapter 7. And there at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus draws the intention of the entire crowd. Do some study on it. It's an amazing thing because there's a particular moment in time at the feast where everything just sort of stops and the priests come in. It's a midday sun. It's about noon. The priests come in and they they bring a pitcher of water, which is symbolic of some things, and they pour that pitcher of water out. And you can imagine everyone there in the hot sun of the day is looking at that water being poured out and thinking, that should be poured into my mouth. I'm very hot and thirsty and tired. And please do something like that. And in the midst of that, Jesus cries out to the silence and he says these words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then notice what he says a verse later. He says, and this he said about the Spirit that those who believe would receive. The Holy Spirit is the promise to all of us that believe. And upon believing, the Holy Spirit comes and He takes up residence in our heart and He begins to guide us and direct us and empower us and enable us. And so again, take notice, in, whether it's John 4 or John 7 or the name of this particular gate here in Nehemiah chapter 3, we're not speaking of a reservoir and we're not speaking of a pool or a cistern where the water could kind of accumulate and grow stagnant, but we're referring to a flowing river or a fountain. And so John 4 refers to it as a spring of water. John 7 calls it a river of living water. 
And the Spirit is to be active and alive in our lives. It's Him that enables us and that empowers us. Now, a lot of times in Christianity, we talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. Many of us, when we think about our prayer life and things like that, we think about communing with the Father. We pray to the Father, we seek the Father, and so on. And sadly, it seems that our relationship with the Holy Spirit oftentimes goes undiscovered or perhaps even ignored. And the Apostle Paul, he tells us that we are, in Ephesians chapter 5, to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Not a once and for all experience, but a continual filling, day in and day out, that He might guide us and direct us and lead us. There's a great resource we have available at the, the bookstore. It's called They Found the Secret. And the book, They Found the Secret, is about eight or ten different men and women that discovered the filling of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They refer to it as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they discovered this in their lives and their walks with Jesus, though they were great before. They were fine people being used by the Lord in different places. Though they were fine before, something changed when they came to discover that personal relationship, if you will, that filling with the Holy Spirit. They were transformed forever. And I don't know which of the experiences we can quantify. Which one's the best? Is it the sheep gate or the fish gate or the old gate or the dung gate or the fountain gate? Which one of those is the best? I don't know which one of those gates and experiences with the Lord is the best. They're probably all awesome. They are all awesome. But I would suggest to you that when we discover the presence and working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that that has to be right up there at the top. Let's move on. Let's go to the seventh gate. The seventh gate is the water gate. The water gate, this is the place that Nixon got himself into trouble. Uh, maybe not exactly. And we're speaking of a different water gate, as you can imagine. The water gate we're speaking of here, it's about 4 o'clock, if you will, on the face of the dial. It's just a little bit north of the fountain gate that we spoke of. What's interesting, the water gate, it's only mentioned here as a reference point. The gate itself didn't fall into disrepair. The gate itself didn't need to be fixed. It's just simply, hey, work up to the water gate. It's a reference point here. And I think there's something symbolic in that as well, that it's significant as well. So as we just saw the flowing water of the fountain gate, that's symbolic of the working of the Holy Spirit. But in the Scripture, water in general is continually seen in the Scripture as a symbol of God's Word. And so here at the water gate, God's Word never needs to be repaired. It's the reference point, though, that we continually come back to. John 15 speaks of us being, he says, clean through the Word. John 17, Jesus asks His Father to sanctify His disciples, that's you and I, by the Word of God. The Apostle Paul, he speaks of us in Ephesians 5, being washed by the water of the Word. And, so I don't, and also, I would say, I don't think it's a coincidence when we come to Nehemiah chapter 8, that Ezra sets up a platform right outside of the water gate to read the Word of God to the people. So again and again, we see that the water gate or water itself, it's sort of this reference to the Word of God. And as we continue in our journey with the Lord, we must all discover the vital place that the Word of God must play in our lives. Hebrews, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he says this, that the Word of God is living and active. And that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. I quoted earlier from 2 Timothy that God, the Word of God is God-breathed and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. And every one of us must sit and take in the Word of God. And I don't know what your life is like. Sunday mornings is not enough. 
If you're trying to walk this walk with Jesus by getting an hour's fix every Sunday morning, you're not going to go anywhere with the Lord. It's just the way it is. You need to take that time for yourself where you're sitting with the Word of God, you're reading it, you're trying to understand it, you're asking good questions. Lord, I don't understand what this means. Can you help me? Picking up another book somewhere that gives you a little bit of insight. Oh, you didn't know this, but let me explain something here. And oh, I get it now. And let God speak to you through the Word of God. You have to have your own personal quiet time with the Lord in the Word of God. And if you don't know how to do that, we can help you. We can get some folks that can sit with you and explain some things with you. But we all need to sit with the Word of God and take it in. To be men and women that read it, but let it read us. And that's what the Word of God does. It reads us. It exposes us. It says, hey, that reminds me. Doesn't that remind you of that time you snapped at that lady in traffic? Yes, Lord, it does remind me of that time that I snapped at that lady in traffic. And so on. Let it read you. And we have to let the Word of God speak truth into our culture. Speak truth to our, the cultural mores of our society and norms of our society. That it would rise above, if you will, the cacophony of the world, the flesh, and the devil, which is ever so present. The Word of God has to speak into it. You know, there's a reason why the ancient generations referred to Christians as people of the book. It's because they were committed to the book, to the Word of God. And I fear that there's a growing trend in modern Christianity that is away from that. And I would suggest, let's not let that be the trend in our lives. The Word of God and the place of the Word of God. That's the water gate. And we had to keep moving. Let's go to the eighth gate. The eighth gate is listed there in verse, way down in verse 28. It's called the horse gate. Now, I mentioned in our last study, the horse gate is where the king's army would gather before they head out into battle. And for us as Christians, it's a reminder to ourselves that the Christian life will not be an easy road. There's a Bible promise for you to write down. That the Christian life will not necessarily be an easy road. There will be struggles and there will be battles along the way. The Apostle Paul, he reminds us in 2 Timothy 2 that we are to endure hardships like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You know, And there's a trend in modern evangelistic efforts to sell people on the kingdom of God. Things like this. Won't you come to Jesus and have all your problems removed and let him put a smile on your face? Well, the reality is it's a bait and switch technique in which we're tricked or we're tricking someone into buying something without all the information. Because the reality is this. When that evangelist is long gone and this new believer, perhaps, quote-unquote, is suddenly encountering all sorts of difficulties and struggles, they begin to wonder, God, where did I go wrong? This isn't what I signed up for. That's not what that guy or that gal shared with me. I certainly don't have a smile on my face. Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's the way it is. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. And sometimes the trials that we have in this world are because we're believers. It would be a whole lot easier if I wasn't a believer in that particular circumstance. In this world, we will have trials. And the Christian life is not an easy thing. And living for Jesus it will cost you something. That's what the Scripture teaches. In fact, Jesus says it will cost you your entire life. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus said, He said to all, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake, they will save it. And so let's not deceive anyone. Let's not deceive ourselves. Becoming a Christian won't eliminate all of the problems of this life. 
The reality is the Christian walk is a battle. And so from time to time, we're going to have to go out through the horse gate. And it'll be a battle until we go home to be with Jesus. And so Paul exhorts us in the Scripture. Ephesians 6, he says, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. So Christian walk is a battle. Now we move on around the city wall. We come to the ninth gate, which is the east gate. Verse 29 tells us the east gate. The east gate has been described as the gate which should thrill and flood our souls with joy. I mentioned in our study a few weeks back that the first gate that would catch a glimpse of the rising sun because of its location was the east gate. And so this would be the first gate that was opened uh, each morning. There would be a watchman on the wall whose job it was to protect the city at night. If people started gathering outside of the city, he would eventually uh, sound the alarm, wake everybody up, rise them up, hey, people are coming to attack. And the watchman on the wall would long for the time when the sun would come up. Because when the sun came up, he could essentially say, my, my evening is done. I've done what I was supposed to do. I protected the people. And now I can go to bed knowing that everybody is safe. And so someone would call to the watchman, well, what's up the night? And what a thrill after a long period of darkness that the watchman could say, you know what? The dawn is coming. The sun is rising. The city is safe. And what a joy it must be to be able to declare that after a long period of darkness, that the light has come. And the east gate, it speaks of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to establish His kingdom. That the darkness of this world has passed and the glorious sun uh, has risen and brought about the start of a new day. Now doesn't that just thrill your heart? Certainly it does. Because we battle, we wrestle, we struggle, we go through our ups and downs, we go through the valleys, and eventually we come to the place where we say, Lord, I just want to go home. I just want to go to heaven. And I want to look into your face and I want to stop with the struggles. I just want to go there. Jesus said this, I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And again, how we long for that day. Now let's look at the final gate. The final gate is called the muster gate or the inspection gate. We read about it in verse 31. And when the king's men would gather for battle, they would go to the horse gate. But when they would come back from battle, they would come to the muster gate or the inspection gate. The muster gate was the place of review. Some of your versions are listed as the gate mifkad. You might see it there. It's a transliteration of a Hebrew word which means simply review. So this particular gate was the place of review. And historically, we know that David established the precedent that he would go personally and meet his men at the muster gate. And he would review them. And he would give them, if you will, his thanks for the work that they have done. Or he would reward them for their faithful service. And so what does that stand for in the Christian experience? Well, I would suggest to you it represents the time when the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he will gather his servants, you and I, and review our labor. And if you will, dispense rewards. Paul says in Romans chapter 14, he speaks of a day when all of us are going to give account of ourselves to God. So he says, so then each one of you will give an account of yourself to God. In another place we read this, Paul makes it clear that every one of us is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that no one, each one I should say, may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it be for good or for evil. Our entire Christian lives will be reviewed on that day. 
that day of judgment. Now, I do want to be clear. Sound like President Obama. Let me be clear. All right, I want to be clear. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about rewards. 1 Corinthians 3 says this, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the judgment day, will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done. If our work is burned up, we will suffer loss, but though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so we're not talking about salvation, but we're talking about rewards. We're talking about review. We're talking about inspection, where the king of kings comes out and reviews our lives. And none of our works will be hidden. Again, salvation is not in question. That was settled at the cross. But what will be in question is whether the things that we have done in this life as we've journeyed around the walls of the city, if they will merit His saying to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. They're sobering words. But at the same time, they don't have to be sobering, do they? They can cause great excitement. You can go out into battle and you can do a fantastic job there in the Christian walk and you could really serve the Lord and honor the Lord in that, and you can expect great rewards when you come to your day of review. And so it doesn't have to be sobering words. They can be exciting words. That takes place at the muster gate. Now I want to make one final point. We've made our way around to the ten gates, but you have to notice in verse 32 that Nehemiah brings us full circle. And he mentions again the gate that he mentioned in the beginning. He mentions the sheep gate. Full circle, back to the place we started, the sheep gate. We started at the sheep gate, and by God's grace, we end at the sheep gate. Now remember, the sheep gate represents the place of sacrifice. And for us as followers of Christ, that's the cross of Jesus Christ. We begin and we end at the sheep gate because everything in the life of the Christian is in light of the cross of Christ. So we tell others what the Lord has done for us in light of the cross. We head off into the painful valley area for God to expose areas of sin and rebellion in our lives. That takes place at the cross. We enjoy the presence and the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. <coughs> it's all because of His work on the cross. Everything comes back to the cross. A few weeks ago, I had the fortunate, and I, I emphasize the word fortunate, experience of being able to minister to a saint of God on her deathbed. And she would actually go to be with the Lord just a day or so after my visit. And honestly, I don't know everything about the woman's theology or her many good deeds or the way in which she worked out her salvation during her many years here on the earth. But what I knew was this, that as this woman lay on that bed about to enter into eternity, that there had been a moment in time in this woman's life when she came to the foot of the cross, she recognized her need for a Savior, and she confessed that Jesus alone could be that Savior. And so together she, her daughter, and I, we took communion. And all those other things, her theology and how she works out her faith and, and who she ministers to and serves and, and all these things, all those other things faded away. They faded to the background and the cross once again became magnified. You see, everything begins and ends at the cross. And in that moment there with that woman celebrating communion, that was really the only thing that mattered. And friends, that's the only thing that matters will ultimately matter in our life as well. It begins and ends at the cross. What have you done with the gift of salvation offered to you in Jesus Christ? That's what matters. And may the Lord bless you as you meditate on that truth and the truth of each of these, uh, the symbolic look at each of these gates. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that there's an empty tomb.
and that You rose again. Your gift was uh, accepted. Lord, we thank You for salvation. Lord, every one of us, we come to the, the place of the sacrifice and we confess our needs. We're sinners. Sin separates us from a holy God. And that's an eternal separation unless something is done. And Lord, we just uh, delight in the truth that God so loved the world that He gave His Son that whoever would believe on Him would have eternal life. That we wouldn't perish. That our sins are washed and cleansed and You look upon us with the righteousness of Christ. And Father, we pray for anyone here with us that has yet to come to that place that You would do a work now in their hearts. And Father, for those of us that have been walking with You maybe for a little while, maybe for many years, Lord, we, uh, we take seriously sort of this exhortation to make our way around the city walls. Maybe it's been a little while since we allowed You to expose us in the valley. Lord, maybe it's been a little while since we've dealt with sin in our lives at the dung gate. Lord, maybe we've drifted from our time with You at the water gate, just sitting with the Word of God, allowing it to wash over us and cleanse us. Lord, maybe we've taken our eyes off of heaven and Your soon return and allowed them to be fixed upon the things here on the earth. So Lord, just kind of take us around the wall this next week, I pray. Minister to our hearts. Lord, we're so grateful for Your Holy Spirit in our lives. What an awesome teacher He is and work that He does. And we just pray that You would teach us and minister to us even as we go from here. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.